Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, ECFR's fortnightly podcast on the ideas, policies and trends that will shape the world. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm director of ECFR. And this week we're having a short break from the Ukraine crisis. Our two topics are going to be the European elections, which take place in just over three weeks, and the collapse of John Kerry's Middle East peace plan following the deadline of the 29th of April. I'm joined by Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, the head of our Reinvention of Europe programme, who is based in Madrid, and by Daniel Levy, who is having a rare uh, stop-off in London. He's the head of our Middle East programme. And um, let's go straight into the uh, first topic, the, the European elections. We have been hearing for months about how these elections are going to be different from the normal European elections. The uh, political class in Brussels has promised that uh, they'll be different because these elections will lead to uh, a, a new, more political way of deciding who will run the European Union. Um, if there's a centre-right majority, we'll get Jean-Claude Juncker. If there's a centre-left majority, we'll get Martin Schulz as the next president of the European Commission. But the opinion polls tell a different story. Um, they have been predicting for many months uh, a Eurosceptic surge at the European elections and uh, make it more likely that the big divide in Europe will be between the elites and the people rather than between these different parties. Um, Nacho's been studying uh, both the, the polls very closely in all member states of the European Union, but also thinking about what's really at stake with these European elections. So maybe you want to kick off and uh, tell us how you see things, Nacho. Well, yes, there's a, there's a big of a, of a debate here as to what the impact will be like and where it will be most um, felt and, and, and how Eurosceptics um, are going to condition or not European politics, either at um, in Brussels or at home. There's a bit of a fight also over, over polls um, due to the fact that uh, Eurosceptics are not uh, cohesive, they are quite diverse, and, and some of them are new. So, uh, so, so, you know, when you look at polls, you see groups and the typical Eurosceptic group, which is EFD, it's only getting 36 MPs, but there is a group which is uh, very large of uh, non-registered um, uh, MPs because they were not there before and their political parties were not there before, which is as large as 97. And this is actually the third political force, uh, way over the what the liberals have at this point, which is 60. So, so in fact, the, those non-registered uh, MPs are going to be the third uh, political force, um, and then there are the other groups and so on. So, so there's a bit of a, a bit of a debate, but they also there's a there's a debate on turnout, uh, which some people see as a catastrophe and and maybe the main threat to the legitimacy of of the parliament. So, um, it, it is also quite interesting to see what the council will do if the results are what the polls. Are predicting at this point, which is that neither the the socialists nor the populars uh, would have uh, a majority of their own to to post the candidates as presidents of the commission, and maybe the council will will have to go for for someone which is none of the above, 
or non, and, and then you will have a clash between the council and the parliament. So all the elements are there, for, I think, for, uh, for, I don't know whether this is a thrill or a thrill, but, um, but, but there are a significant number of issues which are still undecided, unresolved, and, and, and big questions still around that. But what you're describing, Nacho, sounds like a sort of classic fight within the Brussels beltway rather than uh, something with, with much resonance outside. I mean, Daniel, you're not um, someone who spends most of your time looking at the minutiae of, uh, of EU institutional politics. You're more likely to look at that in, in Israel than in, um, <laughs> than in Brussels. Um, what do you make of the elections? Well... I think, you know, as, as you say, coming that at, at slightly um, not so much from the minutiae, the thing which is not unique to these European elections is how do you get people's attention? How do you get people to think this affects them, which obviously impacts voter turnout and which obviously then impacts the ability of parties who in a national election are likely perhaps to do less well, to be more marginal, but in a European election can assume much greater prominence and ultimately have an impact on the European Parliament and have an impact on people's lives. But when people feel as, as ever um, more distance from these uh, elections and from the institutions, and uh, you're, you're, you're more likely to see what, what could be a, a, a worrying outcome. I, I'm not seeing much by way of being able to 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 change that dynamic and to have an outcome which will which will overcome the the kind of advances that you know a european parliament full of people with at best a degree of uh, antipathy to the european project and without a constructive alternative either is, uh, is is not going to be a good thing. It's certainly true, you know, sitting here in London, that the, the party that's making the most noise is one that doesn't have a single representative in the national parliament. Um, it's the UK Independence Party led by Nigel Farage, and it's quite likely that they will emerge as the, the biggest party after the elections. The They've been trailing the Labour Party slightly in most opinion polls, um, but the latest... Uh, polls they've they've actually come out at the top of the the pecking order and um it is also clear that they have a pitch to people which has got something to do with europe they're saying that they don't like it very much and that europe is the the, the root of many problems not least um the lack of control of over our borders and the the number of uh, eu citizens that have migrated to, to the UK, whereas the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have been studiously silent about, about Europe. Um, Nacho, yeah. to, to what extent do you think that it, it matters if there is a kind of self-hating parliament which is packed with these Eurosceptics? Well, I mean, it, it's going to matter a lot because they, uh, these parties are very good at, at, at running a show and at uh, are capturing the attention of the media because the way they behave, the things they say, and how aggressive they are on mainstream political forces. But I think the, you know, the earthquake at this point, and I think here uh, we have something which finally unites France and the UK, which is quite astonishing, is that parties in government are going to be the third party 
or are at present the third party in the preferences of citizens, both in the UK, where we have the Conservative Party being the third political force um, with 21% of the vote, but also in France, where the socialists are at 18%. Uh, and then in both countries, we have a fantastic surge of uh, Eurosceptics in the UK, up to 28%. In France, 23% being the first um, political force. So I think democratically or politically, this is an earthquake at home, which will send the waves over to to Brussels. And I'm sure that the appetite for, I don't know, maybe, you know, you're, you're over there in London and you tell how, how the conservatives are likely to react to being the third political force here. Uh, but I am skeptic here, if you allow me the word, that the Conservative Party will become more pro-Europe or that their reading of being third in this election is that voters uh, are penalizing them for not being sufficiently pro-European. As for the socialists in France, this is also going to be key as Manuel Valls introduced this huge austerity package and then, you know, voters uh, penalize, penalize the Socialist Party with, with being third political force and with sending Marine Le Pen uh, more than 20 uh, MPs from Marine Le Pen to, 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 the, to the parliament in, in, in Brussels and Strasbourg. So you, you're basically arguing, in fact, as we, as you and I argue in our, in our new paper on the Eurosceptic search, that the main effect will be at a national level because the mainstream parties become more Eurosceptic and become worried about uh, protecting themselves from, from these populist surges rather mm. than the European Parliament in Brussels having a massive effect uh, in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's that's true. I think that maybe uh, some governments have will have to be extremely careful as to who they nominate for uh, for candidates in the Commission because there may be some strange coalitions against against some of them. Uh, I think that the main impact of in, in Brussels is going to be whether they disrupt. Uh, the agenda of the mainstream political forces of having just uh, this election as a contest between Martin Schulz and Jean-Claude Juncker. If none of the above is nominated as president of the commission, then we will have a parliament we will have to, which will have to decide uh, whether to fight or not the council or to, to be humiliated and accept whoever the council sends in. That, that's going to be a, a big battle. But the day after my my main fear, not only in terms of institutions, but in terms of policies, will be uh, for the free circulation of people within um, the European Union. This is clearly the easiest and most visible target of national governments who will be scared of uh, Eurosceptics or Europhobes and where they will want to strike uh, victories. We are already seeing that even in Germany uh, with the government even even if it's a coalition government and they have strong support, uh, electoral support to conduct their policies, but also, you know, disseminating these ideas on welfare, tourism, and 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 picturing immigration as a problem, and and, and he, you know hitting that family reunification, and in practice making it more difficult for people to freely move within the, the European Union. They're not challenging the principle, and they're not challenging law. But they're making life and they're going to make life very difficult for, for those who try to, to move across countries. And the commission is going to have a hard time in deciding whether it goes after these governments or, 
or or just looked aside. Right. And presumably there will also be barriers on um, uh, free trade and uh, some lessening enthusiasm on some of the measures needed to, to integrate to save the, the Eurozone. But maybe because we're running out of time on this segment, yeah. I can ask the two of you who you think will end up being the, the next president of the uh, European Commission as a result of these elections. Because the polls at the moment, I think, show a pretty knife-edge contest between the, um, the EPP, the, the centre-right grouping, and the S&D grouping, the centre-left grouping. But neither of them will have more than a third of the, the, um, the uh, members of the European Parliament in the group. And both candidates, Juncker and Schultz, are quite... Um, uh, controversial in their own ways. Do you think it will be uh, one of those two, Daniel, or do you think it might be someone else? If you put a gun to my head and said, "Bet," I, I, I'm thinking it will probably be someone else. Uh, you know, just one comment on this, though. I, you know, I, I watch this 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 trend of a xenophobic, racist right uh, gaining more traction and not being pushed back against. With, with real concern. And, and there are a lot of dog whistle issues. Nacho just referred to um, freedom of movement, things like serving pork in schools. And, and they, these are clearly being used. And this is an ugly time in European politics. And I think the, the sane um, forces should be pushing back a lot harder than they are rather than uh, co-opting some of this uh, xenophobia. Totally agree. And Nacho, what's your prediction? Yeah, that, that's quite interesting. Yeah, Daniel, because you know there's there's a bit of a of a risky game here because if you really want to go against these eurosceptic forces, you should go for someone like well, Schulz and, and and Juncker would of course do. Even Verhofstadt would be the fantastic consensus candidate representing the liberals, like right in the middle, very federalist president of the Commission. But that's precisely maybe the reason. That he won't be nominated as uh, president of the of the commission, and the others won't either, because I'm not sure of whether, as it happens in the United Nations, whether member states want somebody in the presidency of the commission who's constantly hitting at them, shaming, and you know them publicly speaking in the name of citizens uh, directly and, and and against government. I don't I don't know to which extent. They will want someone who is strong enough to speak in the name of the people, and they will go for someone like a sort of, you know, comparing what Ban Ki Moon has been compared to maybe Kofi Annan and, and some of the secretary generals. It seems that it, it comes to a point in which member states who have to appoint these people, they decide not to be challenged by, by someone they, they have to appoint. And do you want to stick your neck out, Nacho, and say who you think it will be? I would say that uh, we will have a surprise in 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 in, in the council um, going for for someone outside this this big three uh, because at the these these three names because at the end of the day they know that political the parliament is made of national political parties which will have to be disciplined and vote in favor of uh, whoever they. They, they they put front up you know in, in, in to, to them so i think the council will will love to do this of exercise of you know will enjoy asserting its power vis-a-vis parliament by by even forcing as they did in the past even some socialists to vote 
for for uh, for another candidate. You know, we let let us remember that in the past, uh, for example, Spanish socialists voted for for Barroso uh, because they were part of the of the deal out of which they decided well, a Portuguese liberal is better than whatever a conservative from the north or a socialist from from the north, whatever. So so I think the the council. Um, it's going to be a bit sadic or you know, with, the, with the parliament because they, they really want to tell the parliament who's in charge and, and, and prevent the parliament from believing that it's a true parliament who can appoint government. Well, I, I think that that's definitely what they want to do. But I was in Brussels at the beginning of this week and the message I picked up is that they fully expect the European parliament to unite behind a single candidate the day after the elections um, in order to put pressure on the the council. And the messages I picked up is that whilst if there is a slight, if the social, uh, if the socialists and Democrats emerge as the biggest group, the centre-left faction, um, it would probably be possible to to get a blocking uh, minority against Martin Schulz. But if the yeah. centre-right EPP group emerges as the biggest group, be much more difficult to block Jean-Claude Juncker. Yeah. And maybe yeah. the only way to do that would be to get a, a real superstar like uh, Christine Lagarde to, to, to come back from yeah. Washington yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. make a case that, you know, you want a powerful woman at this time of, of crisis for Europe. Yeah. But that would also mean that François Hollande would have to appoint a European Commission president who was not um, uh, a socialist, which is also not something he's particularly yeah. renowned for doing. So yeah. the the other possibility is that Herman Van Rompuy, who is going to have to arrange the kind of messy compromises between the different factions, might end up finding it impossible to, to find a candidate that he, um, that he likes from all the other groups and have to appoint himself. Uh, that's what he did in Belgium when he had to do a similar task and uh, find yeah. a Belgian prime minister. But anyway, we'll come back to yeah. this after start, the elections. Yeah, there's, a, there's a small detail here in the numbers, which I think is relevant, is that at, uh, the People's Party, uh, Paul says they will get 213, the Socialists 208. But there is a bit of a trick here because very few people uh, remember that uh, Fides, Victor's Orban party, is integrated in the EPP and they have 10 votes, you know, 10 MPs. So uh, it's going to be quite, I mean, it's quite controversial that after what has happened in Hungary, the EPP does not want to to throw, you know, Fidesz uh, out of the group because without them, they will be behind the socialists. And I think we, we can all agree in the fact that Fidesz today does not belong to the EPP. Uh, it's, it's, it's rather on the, on, on the ECR or even on the far right, you know, but, but that's, that's, kind of tricky but i think it's quite relevant in a sense you know okay well we we've definitely overshot on the time that we had on this but and we are definitely going to have to come back to it after the elections so um the other big story of this week is the much vaunted uh uh, and dramatic um, contortions that John Kerry um, has made as his peace plan has uh, collapsed. Daniel, do you want to talk us through uh, the events of the week and also tell us what they mean in terms of the, the prospects for a, the two-state solution that Europeans have been pushing for since 1980? Well, April 29th was the end of the uh, nine-month period that the Americans got agreement for to uh, get Israelis and Palestinians talking again. Nine months led to any number of quite 
boring metaphors regarding pregnancies and what this didn't give birth to. But the ambition on the American side uh, was in almost constant um, receding curve throughout this nine months. And it went from being comprehensive deal uh, in nine months to getting a framework for a deal in nine months and then became, can we just have some more time? Can we have another nine months? I think it's 13 visits by the Secretary of State to Israel and the Palestinian territories. We're told by the New York Times that Secretary Kerry has met with Palestinian President Abbas 34 times in this period, and with the Israeli Prime Minister double that number, which, if that is accurate, is really quite remarkable. And that 29th of April deadline passed, and... There is no continuation of talks. There is no agreement. And more than that, we already in the last period uh, found the parties back playing the blame game and asking the Americans and the court of world public opinion and Europeans and others to almost like a kind of Olympic figure skating, hold up your scorecards, who's more to blame for, for this having gone pear-shaped. Now, you know, a, a couple of things I'd say on this. First is, when the Americans came to this, was enough thinking done? And the word reset used to appear with regularity during Obama's first term. Was there enough of a reset on how you go about breaking this long-standing impasse? And I think most people throughout have argued that no, there wasn't enough of a rethink. There are structural flaws and failures to this process. There's a deep asymmetry between the parties. And the one new thing that the Americans seemed to bring was what I just described, this intensity of involvement of the Secretary of State. And if you got the Secretary of State in the room, the parties would somehow have to soften their positions. And I think, unsurprisingly, what we discovered was the mere presence of the Secretary of State wasn't enough if he was unable and I, and I won't bore people with the domestic American politics when it comes to this issue, because I think they're well rehearsed. But if America was not able to use its leverage, then nothing really changed. Where that leaves us is it, it's not that, oh, well, there was a try, nice try, never mind. I think what people are beginning to appreciate is there is a cost to a failed process. There is a cost to the U.S., I think, you know, another hit for American credibility. In the last days, we've seen, we've seen a really ugly um, scene with America tying itself up in all kinds of knots, offering Israel the release of, a, of an Israeli spy, Jonathan Pollard, um, the Secretary of State, John Kerry, referring to the prospects of an, of an apartheid reality, and then walking back that reference uh, in, in ways that did not cloak him in glory. Hmm. So there's a cost to the US for this, but there's also a cost to the prospects of peace itself. Israelis and Palestinians lend less and less credibility to this process. They lend less and less credibility to a possible two-state outcome. And for, I think for the Palestinians, what you see is, is a constant loss of belief that occupation will ever end, that two states can never be achieved, and that America or the international community can never really be um, an effective, let alone honest broker. And now we're, now we're back in the what, what happens next. Um, 
as I said, deep into the blame game, Israeli settlement expansion, the Palestinians forming a unity government, um, which, of course, are very different things. Uh, and although Oslo and the structure of the Israeli-Palestinian situation has proved very resilient for 20 years, we have seen ongoing Israeli encroachment in Palestinian territory, a failure to get a deal, but, Os but the Oslo structures have stayed in place. I think the likelihood is that will continue. But as each side sees less and less seriousness in that option, you might see an accidental unraveling um, of these Oslo structures, which have, have really not served the Palestinians well and have really served the Israeli occupation project very well indeed. Nacho, how do you see Europeans reacting to this? Because in a way, you know, on, on the one hand, Kerry was the answer to European prayers over many years. As an American statesman who really took this seriously, who invested his time and energy in it. But at the same time, his failure to stand up to uh, the Israelis on settlements, on uh, any kind of real moves beyond simply <clears throat> taking part in the, the talks, showed that pressure is not really going to come from Washington on the Israeli side. What what message do Europeans take away from this? Well, I think I, I don't know how much or, you know, how far things have to go for, for, for Europeans to realise that what they have been expecting probably in the last years that the US will be at the end of the day the, the one and definitive you know, superpower coming in to fix all our problems in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, I think this is a this is a moment for a sort of a wake up call. And you know, I'm I'm not just easily criticizing Obama. I think we all understand how tough and how complicated things are and so on. But it's but it's not a coincidence that uh, that you know from from the Palestinian peace process to Syria to Ukraine. Um, we 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 are I think quite puzzled by by the fact that the that the U.S. is not being is not able to do things in places like like this conflict in which in theory um, they can they they are the only ones who can do that. So you know, it's how what do we make of this in in terms of uh, of Europeans who always have wanted to to do the catering maybe for the agreements and to host. And you know, for example, Spain diplomacy has, for many years, trying to offer itself as a, probably the rest of Europe to be a facilitator, to be an implementator. But maybe we we have to stop thinking, you know, about these categories. Uh, on the other hand, if Americans can't, um, what do we do? Do we put pressure directly, as maybe Daniel was suggesting, if to to the Americans to get engaged, or is this beyond? Our, our possibilities is just uh, the definitive confirmation that we are not relevant anymore uh, here. So, Daniel, you at the end of what you, you were saying, you were kind of hinting that, that everyone's going to have to rethink their approach now that because uh, Oslo might collapse accidentally, but also its credibility with anybody uh, has to be pretty low. I mean, people are pretending to move towards a two-state solution, but their actions somewhat undercut that, certainly in Israel's case. Um, do you want to go into a bit more detail about how you see this uh, playing out? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a, there's a, a, a big piece of this which 
is is about if the Palestinians continue to be locked into what I think many people look at and say is, is a bit of a trap for them uh, with a Palestinian authority that exists on donor support, uh, Israel handing over tax revenues it collects. So it exists at the goodwill uh, of, of Israel and the international community. It's the largest employer of Palestinians. There's there's almost this trap in place that it is really up to the Palestinians to decide. Uh, do they want to um, stay in this situation where they they have a negotiation, they occasionally have a flirtation with the UN or a flirtation with unity or a flirtation with suggesting there should be costs for Israel uh, for the occupation? Or do they want to really uh, adopt a more challenging posture in order to to assert and, and attain their own freedoms and rights and dignities, whether in their own state as two states or as people increasingly talk about uh, as a civil rights struggle to uh, to achieve equal rights in, in what becomes one state and will presumably not be the state of Israel as we recognize it. So I think there's a, there's a whole piece of this, which is not a European and it's not an American decision to make. It's a it's a Palestinian agency and strategy decision to make. But, but beyond that... But Daniel, uh, just before we, we go beyond that, because I think that's an interesting European question to an extent, though, because it's Europeans who are funding um, the status quo. If Europeans decided not to pay for the, the Palestinian Authority, it would collapse. And also, Europeans have been the ones who have been the strongest advocates of the idea of a two-state solution. It was in the... What was it? The Venice Declaration. Venice Declaration, yeah. Back in 1980. Um, I mean, Nacho, do you, do you think that Europeans might now move towards uh, a, more of a one-state approach and say, you know, if, if Israel's not serious about giving a state to the Palestinians, maybe the Palestinians should just be given full rights within a greater Israel, if that's going to be the reality? But, but I, I don't really see the appetite for investing a lot of energy and putting pressure on, on Israel or also... On, on constructing the sort of internal bargains and balances that you would need to, to go ahead with that. Even in the past, we've seen, and, and, and Daniel has probably realized that, you know, that there are many member states who may be willing along the road of sanctions, but very timidly if they pay off very rapidly and then they can be very easily withdrawn, that uh, this is something which with which uh, governments uh, are not comfortable. They would rather not do, not do, and, and I don't think they want to go the full road um, into into developing the sort of policy that that Europe will need. They will, they they will always, you know, like like in the stag hunt game, they always know that someone is going to break ranks and 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 blink. Um, because they see, they see even the United States doing this at the at the end of the day. I don't think we have the internal consensus uh, across Europe of the will to build it and face sort of you know even the, the consequences. And, and Ma, I, I also think that that as long as you have a Palestinian leadership address which has enough of, of of an ability to to assert, hey, we really are the Palestinian address that is saying. Europe, what we want you to do is pay the PA bills. As long as that is the ask from the Palestinians, um, I think money, even in these squeezed times, does become the cheapest thing for Europeans yeah. to offer because the alternative to money is, uh, is some really hard political choices. What that leaves us with, I think, is, is the following. 
the 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 essential question is at what stage and under what circumstances does the Israeli calculation, the calculation of the Israeli public, then transmitted to Israeli politicians, become that the status quo is too costly to bear? Uh, and there are various scenarios for that happening. But right now, for the average Israeli, not overly concerned with the morality of occupation or with long-term thinking about, about their state, for the average Israeli, it is not an irrational choice to say, you know, let's let's have the status quo. The occupation is is paid for by by Europeans. It's a divisive uh, internal issue. And when it comes to thinking about um, changing that calculation, I, I think something really there's an interesting dance going on. Almost, it's a shadow dance between America and Europe, because what the Obama administration has time and again been saying is, you know, we support you, Israel. Whatever you do, we support you. Um, but the rest of the world is losing patience. And, yeah, the Europeans, they're really losing patience. And we don't know how long we can hold them back. And you almost have Europe saying, well, no, 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 no. We're not going to come in and, uh, and be the, the tiebreaker on this by imposing real costs on Israel. The caveat, and it's, it's an important point, the caveat to all of that is that Europe is bound by its own rules, its own laws, its own adherence to legality. And this is beginning to play out in interesting ways in the Israel-Europe relationship because the occupied territories, the settlement entities uh, are illegal. That's not part of Europe's uh, relationship and cooperation with Israel. And because Israel draws no distinction uh, between Israel proper and the, the settlement entities, the occupation, that is beginning to throw up all kinds of interesting challenges, which if Europe pursues its own legality, could end up um, really impacting the Israeli cost-benefit calculation if the Europeans are, are, are willing to move forward with that. And that is something the Europeans can do. And it's not just about what America is doing or what America is not doing. The other thing, as, as, uh, as you referred to, Mark, is there is a one-space one reality. And I think the more people say that, you know, Israel has been there for coming up on 50 years. And it's hard even to talk about this as an occupation because occupation is a word used often to, th to things more temporary. This one space is going to have to be managed democratically. And, and, and if it's not going to be in two states, it's still going to have to be democratic. And I think to, to place that choice more clearly um, in front of Israelis, because for all the complexities that surround this never-ending Israel-Palestine issue, there's one element that's really, really simple which is there is a one power that is an occupying power, and either it turns that occupation into something democratic or it ends that occupation. And at that level, it's a very simple thing. Okay. So Kerry's plan is dead, um, and the status quo may very well continue unless uh, European legal frameworks or Palestinian activism... Um, try to overturn it. And we'll be watching this space um, uh, and I'm sure returning to it in many future podcasts. That brings us to the end of um, the two main segments. Um, very quickly, we should uh, do the final segment on our bookshelves. Um, so, uh, Nacho, what's, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm reading a book by one of our council members, um, Andres Ortega, who has served twice as uh, main policy advisor to two 
presidents of the government in Spain, both for Zapatero and for President Gonzalez in the in the past. And 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 it's a book about how to fix um, European democracy and also democracy at home, which and how this has been interplaying throughout um, the crisis. Uh, it, it's interesting because we usually and you know it follows on Daniel Roderick's dilemma that you should either choose democracy at home or a supranational democracy. But Andres, hopefully, he, he thinks, you know, and maybe he's right, that by fixing democracy at home, first you can also have a true supranational democracy effectively working. I think it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It's having quite an impact here in, in Spain in the political debate. What's it called? Skepticism is rising. It's called Recomponer la Democracia, Recomposing Democracy. Okay, we'll put a link to it on the site. Daniel, what, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I, I, with, with you, Mark, and, 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 and others, we've just been in, in Saudi, so I was reading a lot on Saudi, but now I've come back to a book that I was uh, reading before that and am now completing, and uh, unfortunately it goes back to the subject we were just discussing, and it's a book called My Promised Land by Ari Shavit, who is a columnist in Haaretz, and this book has... has really had a, a, a got tremendous coverage at least yeah. uh, in the US um, and I, I have to be honest I, I came to this book not as a fan of Ari Shavit I leave the book being even less of a fan of Ari Shavit and being worried that this is going to be a very effective exercise in making the, the supporters of Israel who were beginning to think okay maybe that that support needs to be more criti critical, more nuanced, more thoughtful, will put them back in their comfort zone, which I don't think is a healthy thing. Um, and I think what Shavit's book says to me is the journey that, that even liberal Israel and liberal Zionists still need to go on if, if, if Israel is really going to come to terms with the Palestinians, with its place in the region, because it, it is just replete with, to be honest, many of the, the, the mythologies I, I grew up with and, uh, and that have outlived their, their usefulness um, in the 21st century of, the, of, of uh, a folkish nationalism and a victimhood. And when I read this book, I think uh, between this faux liberal version of Israel and the more aggressive nationalist version, it's no wonder the, na the aggressive nationalists are, are winning the day. So uh, thumbs down to Ari Shavit. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm reading a book with the very uplifting title um, "Is the EU Doomed?" by um, <laughs> Angelonka, who uh, um, uh, has worked with ECFR uh, in many ways over the years. It's quite a, an interesting um, uh, analysis of the both the disintegration and of the different types of integration which are taking part in Europe as it goes through the crisis and I found it quite a refreshing iconoclastic read I mean I think he, he thinks that the traditional idea of the European Union is doomed but he uh, embraces the emergence of a, of a different kind of integration which is a lot messier a lot more flexible and a lot more postmodern than uh, the ideas which uh, leading European federalists have uh, tried to embrace as the crisis has, has gone on. Um, it's a very short book and um, is quite uh, an easy read. Um, we'll put a link to that on the, the website as well. 
This brings us to the end of our podcast, The World in 30 Minutes. Um, there are links to all the things that we mentioned on the, the website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts, as well as lots of other great material. The producer of ECFR's podcast is Dina Pardice, and we'll be back with a new podcast in two weeks. But for now, from Daniel Levy, Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's thank you and goodbye for now. Thank you.